Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 311. Today is Sunday, the 20th of January, 2019. And this interview is with Mark Miller, who's the Chief Strategy Officer at Team One, part of the Publicis Group. He's also the founder of the Legacy Lab, a research and consulting practice based in LA, helping global brands drive change. He very recently co-authored with Lucas Connolly the book Legacy in the Making, Building a Long-Term Brand to Stand Out in a Short-Term World, which was just selected as a finalist in the Business Book Awards 2019. In this conversation with Mark, we discuss his modern version of legacy, why legacy is key in genuine brand building, what are the keys to building that kind of legacy in today's world, and some of the issues around governance. And just a quick announcement that my new book, Artificial Empathy, Putting Heart into Business and Artificial Intelligence, which just came out, also got selected at the same Business Book Awards as Mark's book, so I hope you'll be taking a look at both books. I also wanted to point out that I'm happy to feature questions, for which purpose I've set up a specific email, nminterdial at gmail, to which you can send me an audio file with your question, and I'll endeavor to follow up with an answer in the next podcast. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. Mark Miller, great to have you on the show, piped in from Los Angeles. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Um, you are working at the Venerable Publicis, and uh, you founded the Legacy Lab, which is such a great name. Uh, which obviously intrigued me immensely. And mm, the reason why together is that you've written this wonderful hardcover, very engaging and entertaining and powerful read called Legacy in the Making. So uh, in your own words, Mark, I mean, apart from, you know, sharing the fact that we play guitar and a few other things, who are you? <laughs> so I am Mark Miller. I'm originally from Toronto, Canada, but I've been living uh, in mostly uh, sunny Los Angeles, not so much today, but mostly sunny Los Angeles uh, since about the year 2000, working at Publicist Group's agency called Team One. And I founded a division inside of it, a practice inside of it called the Legacy Lab that's focused on looking at legacy, not as a backward looking concept, but as a forward looking concept. So your book uh, is, is we're going to talk about legacy, obviously, and a whole lot. But one of the fun things about your book is that you, you managed to spread it out over very different categories and, and types of businesses. And I think it's worth giving a little hat tip to the Toronto Maple Leafs. <laughs> On behalf of the Toronto Maple Leafs and me, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So um, let's, let's talk about the, the modern version of legacy. Because, I mean, in the end of the day, that would sound like there must be an old version of legacy. So, um, which is, is a funny word, a funny kind of characterization because in the end of the day, legacy tends to speak to being old. Tell us what is the modern version of legacy? Absolutely. And, and as sort of preface to answering that question, I'll give you a little flavor for the inspiration and even studying legacy in a modern context. And that is uh, beginning in and around the year 2012. I was working on two related assignments, one for a very famous automotive company that was getting ready to turn 25 years old, and one for a, va- a very famous hotel company that was getting ready to turn 30 years old. And they both looked at their sense of time, place, and history in fundamentally different ways. 
Uh, the one turning 25 felt that it was too young to remark upon because Mercedes, BMW, and Audi would talk about years' worth of heritage, closer to 100 years. And in the hotel category, the brand felt that 30 years was too old to remark upon because it was better to be the brand new anything than the 30-year-old something. And yet here they were, two very successful brands, that if you were starting from scratch today, you would hope that in 25 or 30 years, most leaders would hope they would achieve success like these brands. And so that prompted me to look at the idea of time, place, history, those things that last, those things that don't, and what is the secret to effectively bringing the past forward. And that's how we landed on the notion of legacy, not in terms of its past, but in terms of writing its future each and every day. Uh, there are five aspects of what we call the modern legacy mindset. So if in the old world, leaders thought about maximizing shareholder revenue, contemporary leaders think about a personal contribution, personal ambition, not just for the moment, not just for the quarter, not just for the year, but over a lifetime. Separately, if short-term thinkers thought about building empires and systems, um, the modern legacy thinkers act and, and behave in terms of bringing their beliefs to life, uh, defining culture, and living by their words each and every day. Next, they don't just think about growing customers by selling them better products. They think about creating fans, customers for a lifetime, owners beyond customers, by letting them into the tent. They treat outsiders as though they were insiders. Separately, instead of leading in categories, they think about leading in culture. And finally, instead of thinking about 15 minutes of fame, they think about making a lifetime's worth of contribution. They never stop making legacy. One of the ways that I was brought up, and I'm going to guess this is how many people think of it, is when you're brought in to be the leader of an organization, you're typically given this famous 100 days <laughs> and and thanks to my wonderful friend, Dorian Delati, who was running one of the brands uh, with me, for me, uh, while I was working in L'Oreal in Canada, in La Belle Montréal, we, uh, she said to me, Mentor, within the first 100 days, you need to write your legacy, which... Is, is so appropriate in a world where you're, you're moving from one job to another within the company every three to five years. And the idea that she implanted in me was do something that will last well beyond your little stint. And I wondered to what extent that rhymed with you in, in, in that there's, if you're working in a large organization and, and you're not the founder, you're just a, uh, a new manager who comes in. You have a few examples like that. To what extent the, let's say, the personal ambition legacy side of it competes or is complementary with the idea of a modern legacy for a brand overall? Well, certainly the inspiration or advice you've given uh, rings true for me. It is very much the heart of the thinking and the writing in the book. There's sort of a counterintuitive thesis that we bring to life, and that is that long-term thinking is, in fact, the best short-term thinking. The analogy that we use is if you're a sailor and you're in the middle of the ocean and a gust of wind comes along, the short-term thinker just moves out of the way. All you think about is short-term survival. The long-term thinker moves out of the way with a sense of where they're trying to get to eventually. So when they move, they move with purpose. They can actually move faster, better, and ultimately get to where they're going. And so the notion that leaders of organizations who are filling out these 100-day plans – 
there's a, a meaningful difference between the ones you think know further than 100 days and the ones you think much further ahead, um, three years, five years, 10 years, because that will inform what they're doing for their 100 days. And I think that is an important difference in how modern legacy thinkers move through the world um, and conventional business thinkers and managers really move through the world. So we live in this chaotic world, Mark, where, as we know, it's going forever faster, VUCA and all this. <laughs> and and the presence of technologies uh, has upended the cart in many ways. And I was wondering, you know, we're talking about modern legacy. And, and sometimes it's just because you, you can come up with a thought now. But to what extent have these technologies participated in or, if you will, upended the cart in such a way that you have to play a modern leg. What's the role of technology in your modern legacy? I think there are two equally interesting ideas when it comes to the role and relevance of technology in building a modern legacy. On the one hand, there's the reality that people who are building into the future think about achieving something that transcends any technology that exists today. In that case, technology merely becomes a tool for modern legacy uh, thinkers and act, act people who act that way and behave and believe that way to achieve their goals, ideals, and ambition. Um, technology is a tool, and that makes all kinds of sense. That said, uh, technology can be a very powerful tool in achieving outcomes. So it, it's not just um, superficial, it's not just necessarily fleeting, but if we take social media as evidence of a, a growth of an important te technological platform, um, there's a lovely story in the book about a brand called It Gets Better, <laughs> which was launched by an individual named Dan Savage. And Dan created the business or the platform in response to a rather tragic incident. A young boy named Billy Lucas was bullied at high school. He was bullied because his so-called peers perceived him to be different, uh, queer, gay. And they embarrassed him to the point that Billy Lucas committed suicide. In follow-up, his friends went onto social media and then further belittled him in front of his friends and family. And Dan Savage, a well-known uh, writer and, and uh, media pundit, took the opportunity to use social media in response to say, you know, as young kids, we feel the pressure of being made to feel different. And that leads to some rather horrible outcomes, particularly in the case of Billy Lucas. But here we can use social media as adults to tell kids what happens when you get older, that in fact things get better. And with the perspective of age and wisdom, life isn't always as bad as it seems when we're younger. So Dan and his colleagues made a video, they put it out, that talked about when they were young, how they felt, but as adults, how they had coped and moved on and progressed and done wonderful things in their lives. And what they'd hoped to do was get an additional 100 videos over, let's say, a year of other people saying they felt the same way. Adults encouraging young kids to persevere. But they in fact got thousands of videos just in the first week. And the range of influencers who got involved in terms of making videos were everyone from Barack Obama to Lady Gaga to other well-known actors, uh, politicians, and so on. And so it's an amazing story, a great example of how social media as a modern tool was an opportunity for a group on the outside, the It Gets Better project, to come in and make the case for a young group of kids be their advocates in a changing world. So very powerful stuff. Yeah, and what was interesting about that one was this notion of letting go and having others contribute to the famous UGC, if you will. But it's this notion of having a message and let it go and allow for, you know, empower others to take it on. In, in the old world, brands and brand managers would say, 
put our arms around everything. We control everything. If we don't put our stamp on it, it doesn't go out. If consumers say things back to us and we don't like it, we put an end to it. We don't share it. And it gets better as a perfect example of modern contemporary thinking about how to let brands persist. And that is you don't censor or censure your consumers. You give them platforms to tell their stories and you set it free in the world. So they put their video out there as an example and thousands followed and everything that was shared got passed. And that, in large part, is why it gets better, continues to live on today and make meaningful impact in the world. You're living in L.A., you're working with a great comp- at a great company and with many uh, large companies in the States. And so many of the listeners who aren't based in the States, sometimes we, we look at the United States and say, oh, it's so far ahead. And, and in many capacities, it is, especially out in California. I'm wondering to what extent you still come up against that sort of commanding control, old-fashioned mentality, even in America. Prolifically, I, I would say that um, but particularly as you're dealing with brands that have been around for a longer period of time. And I will add that what's fascinating is when you write a book called Legacy, people imagine you're only talking about brands that are 100 years old. Mm-hmm. In fact, we talk about as a concept that whether you've been around for 100 years or more, 10 years or less, somewhere in between, it applies. And to your question directly, particularly for those brands that have been around a long time, they're used to living in a world where they control. The, the brands that have started from scratch, the brands that are of, of the times, we're sort of born in that age where consumers as owners, consumers as making personal investment is part of the natural sort of course of things. But no doubt, particularly in longstanding organizations uh, that have operated a particular way for a number of years, it's prolific. Coming from my background, having worked for a large multinational around the world, L'Oreal, where we've been around since 1907. So I kind of more understand that. And the majority of my clients tend to be of the long-standing tradition. And so I was very keen to look at the examples of companies who, let's say, come to the game with a legacy. You know, sometimes we call it baggage in my world. (laughs) The question, let's start with the question, how... Is it, is it possible uh, or necessarily desirable for all companies of all manner to have a legacy or to develop a modern legacy? I feel it comes down to a sense of priorities. And no doubt there is a, uh, a group of leaders, a large group of leaders, who say they have one outcome. And that outcome is maximizing shareholder revenue. And in that case... That's about quarterly profitability, annual profitability, and that has nothing to do with making long-term or during contribution. And to say that that is a wrong point of view um, or doesn't make sense entirely in the world, well, for those leaders who think that way, who judge success by the latest title that they get or the next title that they get, the salary that they have and the next salary they have, I'm not sure modern legacy building has to be the way they do business. However, I think the old world belief was you could make a difference or you could make money. And I think we're now operating at a time where brands are showing us that you can do both. You can make a contribution and you can make money. And in fact, as we look at tightening economies and supposed recessions, the brands that speak to what consumers believe in that make contribution are the ones most likely to endure. Our, our book opens up with a really powerful foreword written by Yvonne Chouinard. Yvonne is the founder of Patagonia. And he believes passionately in moving through the world without leaving a trace. He's a climber. He wants to be able to make climbs and not destroy the planet for the climbers that follow. 
And he had a particular issue with the way that the current U.S. president um, talks about, cares for, or doesn't care about the environment um, in such a manner that actually local policy, domestic policy, is different than Yvonne's personal politics. And so right on his homepage in 2018, Yvonne Schwinnard uh, proclaims to his consumers, the president is stealing your land. So that does not sound like a conventional commercial proposition from a company that sells clothes, boots, equipment. And yet the founder of the company put his ideals and values right on the homepage. And what was the response? Well, Patagonia made more money, supposedly, in 2018 than they've ever made before. In response to the president giving tax cuts to favor big business, Patagonia made news of the fact that they took Trump's $10 million tax cut and gave it back to invest in companies that were being good to the planet that we live in. So an amazing story about doing good, believing in something and acting against your beliefs and making a very good living doing it as well. One of the areas that was, I mean, obviously entirely in line, so obviously for people who know me and for myself, (laughs) was that you talk about the notion of personal, taking it personally or having personal ambition. And and I, I think then as a next part of that is having a political perspective. Uh, I talked with a uh, an L.A. Um, colleague, well, not colleague, someone who lives in L.A., um, Latia Curry, who at South by last year talked about the need for brands to be uh, be carefully but more political which is something anathema to those of the you know long term profit share shareholder you know driving only shareholder profit and so on uh, so on the one hand there's this notion of of being personal and political and on the other hand you have governance and shareholder responsibilities talk me through how you negotiate that path as you are trying to propose to a, a man or a woman running at a large organization that is many billions of dollars been around for a long time and and you want to get them to drive the business with a, a more modern legacy? Well, if we, if we key in off the last question and take a brand like Patagonia as, a, as an example, by following their passions and following their beliefs, they had the most profitable year they've had in history, supposedly. Incredibly high employee retention, incredibly high employee attraction, Per Patagonia, they don't have to advertise for jobs if they don't want to because they have so many backlog based on people who aspire to work there. And more talk and buzz about this brand that just had their 45th anniversary versus companies that are simply saving profit, uh, pursuing profit, and in fact making so much money that they can afford to take a $10 million tax cut, donate it to charities and causes they believe in, and still make a ton of money. So the notion that business is about making money I think there's a lovely case to be made for the brands that endure, like a Patagonia, are pursuing something above profit and profits and profits and outcome. On the other end of the spectrum, there's a, a really interesting fact that we put in the book, which is in the 1920s, the average lifespan of a company listed on the S&P 500 was 67 years. Today, it's just 15 years. So at this rate, more or less, three out of four companies currently in the S&P 500 can be replaced in 10 years. And to see that in action, companies that we thought would be around forever, Toys R Us, Gibson Guitars, Radio Shack, Sears, and more, all filed for bankruptcy last year. So the company that sues purpose, greater than profit, achieved so much more. The companies looking only at short-term quarterly profitability 
are the ones struggling for relevance and the ones struggling to make money. So you're, let's say you, you're addressing a, a board of governors, a board of directors, and you say, hey, listen, you guys, who, who around the table is prepared to put their personal ambition and their personality in driving the legacy of this company? And, and when, it's, when it's Brian Chesky or uh, you know, founder, you know, Yvonne Schwinar, who owns it, who feels it, breathes it, you know, is it, it's one thing. But when you come in as a hired gun to be the CEO it's a, it's an awfully strong and difficult task to somehow imbue embed your personal ambition within and inscribe it in some time some type of long-term plan one of the pieces that i felt i learned in doing the research uh, that really stood out to me um was in and around this notion of what we call refounders uh, the folks that you're talking about the mm-hmm. ones who didn't ones who didn't build it from scratch but who either inherited something uh, or took something over and I'll give you a great example based on a brand that I really love called Taylor Guitars. <laughs> because they took the point of view that while they have a successful and profitable company today, as founders, uh, Kurt and Bob could sell their company to the highest bidder and personally walk away with a lot of money and be personally content and satisfied. And if their goal was maximize shareholder revenue or personal revenue in this case, uh, as they're the shareholders, um, that's how they would have done it. And yet when they asked themselves why they got into business and what they were trying to create and how they were trying to change the guitar industry for the better, they took a different point of view. They actually went out and found their successor, a guy named Andy Powers, in real time. They wrote this job description. Um, uh, Bob Taylor had a funny way of describing it. I think it was his Dear God letter. Like, I don't know how I'm ever going to find this person, but Dear God, I hope I can find a young man or woman who loves crafting with wood like I love crafting with wood who wants to make a difference to the business that we're in, who's an amazing guitar player, and on and on. It sounded like looking for a needle in a haystack, and he found him. found this guy named Andy Powers. And Andy came to the organization, and he is cross-training with Bob in real time. And so before Bob moves on, instead of just selling uh, the company to someone else, they're going to hand the keys over to a guy like Andy Powers. And his obligation is to not just repeat the history that came before, but to add to it. So sure, they'll reissue some famous guitars, but Andy's responsibility is to build new guitars, change the face of Taylor's, left it better than how he received it. And because he cares passionately, not because he's a manager, but because he's a leader with vision and ambition, he has the ability to make long-term differences company to keep it vital for years to come. Totally different than a company like Gibson, where at some point in time, a manager took over, at some point in time, bean counters took over, And instead of focusing on long-term ambition, they took costs out of the system. They produced more guitars at a lower price, to a degree disenfranchised some long-term owners, and didn't galvanize the culture of this organization. They took something great and they made it less so. Whereas Taylor is taking something great and building its future to be more long-lasting and remarkable. That's a great description. And of course, you know, I can only smile uh, since I'm a huge Taylor fan. one of the stories that I really liked in your book was around the Bluebird Cafe, uh, where and the interesting element of transitioning from one owner to another, because in the end of the day, if you are to create a legacy, there's a sort of a notion of continuation, right? Uh, well, I'm going to create the legacy, and, and this is the legacy in the future of who we are going to be, <laughs> which when you're going to hand over the baton to the next person who's taking over, 
well, they at some level have to buy in on that and and continue it, of course, adapting it and making it evolve and finding other ways to contribute, just like your re-founder did at Taylor. But you, you, this notion of, of handing the baton over and finding the right owner for Jer- Ben and Jerry's, I, 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 I really think about their infinite contract that they handed over to Unilever. In other words, it, you know, it had to be forever <laughs> that they would keep the Ben and Jerry's culture, which they took pains to have afterwards we can debate whether they were successful in that or not but it it's an important component of creating a lasting legacy i think bluebirds a, a lovely story for those who are less familiar with it it's a, effectively a listening room launched in nashville in 1982 in reverence to songwriters it holds a hundred people its reputation is enormous it's an incredibly iconic place the world's most famous particularly country songwriters and or Americana, Americana songwriters have all got their start or aspired to get their start at the Bluebird Cafe. And the founder, Amy Curlin, rather, when she was coming up on retirement, when she was ready to be done, thought long and hard about what she wanted to do with it because she knew there was a fortune to be made by someone who would knock it down, build a bigger venue, or create an offshoot of it and focus on the marketing of it versus the culture of it. And so she came to the point of view that she was actually going to donate it to the Nashville, uh, Nashville Songwriters Association. She wanted the next founder, the re-founder, to care like she cared and to love like she loved. Um, amazingly, uh, the person running the Songwriters Association at the time actually got their start uh, as a waitress at the Bluebird Cafe. And so you had this lovely marriage of someone who protects songwriters by virtue of Nashville Songwriters Association and someone who had reverence for the foundations for the Bluebird because they were there. They saw them being built. And so the baton pass wasn't from a founder to a manager. It was from a founder to a re-founder who cared about keeping this thing alive for generations. And if you haven't been there and you have the chance, it's, um, it's sort of a religious experience to sit in this environment and hear the songwriters tell you their inspiration for what they built. <laughs> I can just imagine. So a place to stop by uh, if you're in the area. Um, <laughs> in, in, in the book I'm currently plotting and planning and, and going through for, for ni- 2019, one of the things that is of a particular interest to me is the ownership model. And in having done and worked with a lot of companies, the freedom to implement or execute a plan that leads to a modern legacy has to be crimped. And so we've talked about short-term-ism. We've talked about being a publicly traded company. But to what extent can is it possible to break through? And how does one prescribe that journey when you are beholden to your quarterly results? And, and that's just life. It's it's a question. Uh, it's one that we considered in writing the book, um, and it's one that comes up from time to time. And there's no doubt that in large organizations, uh, they're compelled to maximize shareholder revenue, where CEO and CMO tenures are very short. It tr- takes a tremendous amount of personal courage to follow through on pursuing a long-term ambition. Because as soon as those quarterly results come out, companies who are guided by them are prone to take leaders of those organizations and make a change. Big companies tend not to tolerate um, losses or average performance uh, for very long. And that's why, in large part, it's not something that can be handled. uh, It's not leadership by committee. 
Um, consensus is okay, but not compromise. Compromise will lead to failure. I, I think for individuals to see succeed in an organization of the size of a Marriott or the size of a Toyota, it requires a leader with a strong uh, sense of the future and the courage to make that future real. For small organizations, it, it takes conviction as well. But as you say, when you have all the autonomy, when you have all the power, when you can make all the bets, the consequences are strictly on you and the small group that you employ. So, um, yes, there are probably more examples of small business owners taking the leap to drive toward the long term. But yet, large companies that we admire, uh, Toyota for one, Marriott for another, have these folks at the top who are driven by long-term vision and ambition and courage. One of the fun stories I, I enjoyed was uh, the Grey Goose, where you have the uh, Sydney Frank and François Thibault, who uh, had this obsession, said, I love, amazingly crazy idea, how to make a distinctive vodka when the description definition, as you write, of a vodka is odorless, you know, <laughs> you know, descriptionless. And, uh, and yet they came up with this brilliant idea. It, it makes me think that somehow this notion of the personality that runs the business is indispensable. That it, it does somehow, even as much as we want to say middle management is important, everybody's a leader in their own right. The, the, the people, person who are the founders the, uh, or any event, the leaders of the company have the indistinguishable um, and the strongest impact on the ability to create that legacy. No doubt. We, we make distinction uh, in the book um, uh, implicitly, if not explicitly, that this is not a hypothesis, a thesis or a point of view aimed at managers. It is a point of view aimed at leaders. And as you say, uh, as much as we want large organizations to be filled with people who have leadership-like qualities, organizations require leaders, and leaders have to make tough choices, and leaders need to have that sense of long-term ambition and courage and conviction to follow it through. It can't be outsourced. It can't be distributed across thousands of people. The leaders need people who aspire to follow, who want to take an idea and live that idea every day. Leaders need followers, and followers need leaders. But again, this isn't a book for managers. It truly is a book about leadership for leaders. One of the, my last question then for you, Mark, is, is around this notion of governance. Because as you're trying to create this legacy, you've got your principles about being a uh, contribution, personal ambition, uh, making beliefs come to life and, and so on. These, these are the principles. But how do you... Is there a path or type of governance that you can suggest to people who are trying to lead and create this type of modern legacy? The the first bit of guidance I would give is actually about uh, personal or individual governance and or um, some advice or wisdom that you'd pass on to those hiring true leaders and organizations. And it's based off a, a model called Ikigai, uh, which is something that's been widely written about and reported on. It's something that gets a little bit of attention in the book. And it effectively says that the best leaders are able to satisfy four requirements. The first is they're leaders who are doing something they love. So hiring managers of organizations where the people in charge have no strong passion, commitment, desire for those things that they are building, making, selling every day is not a recipe for long-term success. Those people are caretakers and those people are in it for the short term. So certainly looking for people and assigning yourself to a position um, that obligates you to do something that you love. 
Separately, it's putting people into positions um, where they're good at doing the thing that they love. There are plenty of things that I love in the world that I'm not particularly good at that would not make me a great leader. That would just make me a fan of something. So you need to love what you do, be good at it, and you need to do something that the world needs more of. And so when companies, and I used a guitar example earlier, when companies become focused on the wrong metric, when they don't look at uh, long-term contribution, they look at uh, the financial bottom line only, when they're looking at the wrong thing, they're not filling the world with more of what they need, they're simply looking too inward at a company and how they can reduce costs and restrict versus optimize and maximize contribution to the world. And if you do those things, something you love, something you're good at, something that the world needs more of, then you have the opportunity to make money doing it. And so in terms of personal governments, uh, putting someone in the right, right person in the right position, the factors of Ikigai, I think, are particularly compelling. At a wider level, at an organizational level, there, there are a couple of points I would add here from the book. The first is I would strongly embrace the idea of consensus ahead of compromise. In large organizations, large groups, discussion and agreement at a certain level makes sense but not just down to the lowest common denominator. Companies need to, ambitious, need to be ambitious, chase ambitious goals, give themselves permission to do it, and companies need to reward contributions alongside of profit. So making money, yes, but what other greater contributions are you making toward your company's ambition? When Yvonne Schwinar talks about moving through the world without leaving a trace, what are his employees doing day in and day out to satisfy that? When the Tribeca Film Festival says they will make New York a vital cultural center, what are employees doing each and every day to make New York a richer experience? I think rewarding the right things, not the wrong things, has the chance to incent the right behavior over a lifetime. And as, as much as you were talking about this notion of consensus, I, I couldn't help but think that also being a benevolent dictator is somewhat necessary. Your thoughts? <laughs> I, you know, we, we interviewed so many people that I've heard it said in two different ways. And after having wrestled with it, I, I love when Yvonne Chouinard, who you might say is a benevolent dictator, or certainly when he was the most active in his company, perhaps he was. He was the final decision maker at minimum. And he acted according to his own rhythm and heartbeat. He, he led with what he was passionate about. He considered what others had to say. In his own words, he was the one who said, consensus, not compromise. And so, while it's true, benevolent dictator, absolutely. Um, I think the world's best leaders have open ears to what others have to share and then have strong opinions and take strong action to follow what they think is right. So, Mark, uh, thanks for coming on the show. I, I can only heartily recommend your book, uh, which is called Legacy in the Making, Building a Long-Term Brand to Stand Out in a Short-Term World. And and the pleasure that I had with it, Mark, was, I mean, if I if I look at the table of index, the contents, so my, as people who know me, know me that my favorite professional sport is ice hockey. I was a teaching tennis pro for three years. I play Taylor guitar. I worked at L'Oreal, so Nick's Cosmetics. I code. I did a film, so try back a film festival. There's, as far as I'm concerned, like the whole book spoke to me, and, I, and it's the kind of book, I worked it, by the way, at the Philadelphia Zoo. So I, I feel like, you know, as you read the book, it's very engaging. There's so many different angles that you bring into it and great stories, so highly recommend it. So Mark, tell us, how can someone track you down, get in touch with you, buy your book? The best way to get in touch with me is to visit thelegacylab.com, T-H-E-L-E-G-A-C-Y-L-A-B.com. And there'll be information there on how to get the book. But you can also go to your favorite bookseller, online bookseller, real 
physical world bestseller, books, uh, bookseller, and you'll find our bestseller at those booksellers. Brilliant. Thanks for coming on the show, Mark, and I look forward to seeing you at South by Southwest. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please like the handy Facebook button, or better yet, head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. But first, relax to Joss Sachs's finger paint. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray. best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said,
Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.